Welcome to Driven Minds. I'm Gillian, and this is a Type 7 podcast. Our guest today is the iconic Christina Ricci. Can you hear me jumping out of my skin? Because it's hard to express how much impact this woman has had on me. She starred in her first film, Mermaids, when she was just nine, and since then, I've loved watching her play these depthful, authentic characters that scale real human emotion. A few other of my film faves you might have heard of include Adam's Family, Casper, Buffalo 66, Prozac Nation, Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas, Sleepy Hollow, Black Snake Moan, which I saw the other day. It was incredible. As well as the hit Showtime series, Yellow Jackets, for which she is nominated for an Emmy. Coincidentally, this episode comes out the day after the Emmys. So, dear listener, you have more information than I do right now. Enough fangirling. Here is my conversation with the one and only iconic icon, Christina Ricci. You were scouted when you were eight. Were your parents encouraging you to act or was acting something that you brought up to your parents? No, um, I'm the youngest of four and every kid in my family has been approached at some, had been approached by someone uh, to be a child actor at that point. My mother had been a model, so she absolutely was like, no way, my kids are not doing this. Because models were not treated so well in the 60s and 70s. Yeah. But by the time I was approached, I was about seven, and my oldest brother was 15. So they, kind of my older siblings, kind of pressured my mother to let me do it. And um, I wanted to do it just because I wanted to do things that they thought was cool. <laughs> so they knew you wanted to do it, and they were like, we got your back in like a sibling team kind of situation? No. They thought it would be hysterical <laughs> to see their little oh. sister on television. <gasps> so it was like at your expense. <laughs> yeah. Oh, very much. <laughs> okay, so you're eight or nine years old at this point, and you could have just been a regular kid, like played outside, soccer, ballet, et cetera. But instead, you're like grinding, hustling, going to castings. What nine-year-old really wants to do this, right? The appeal's not that obvious, I, I would think, you know? So what did you like so much about acting and what kept you going? I started when I was seven and I was able to go to school all day and then my mother would pick me up in the afternoon and I would go with her to auditions in the city, come back 7.30, maybe a little late. But um, I very much for a long time was able to maintain both things. And my mother also always insisted that I had the summers off so I could have like Mm. a normal summer, childhood summer kind of thing. So it really didn't feel like I wasn't having both. Right. But at the same time, uh, I would say the thing that appealed to me when I was younger it was um, a chance to really, like, I would spend the afternoons with my mom going to the city, and she would tell me how to function in the city. And um, I started doing something that I was given praise for, um, something I was good at. The same way that, like, you give a kid a hobby and they thrive, mm-hmm. it, that was very much this. It's the same concept, I think, for me as a child. So you had this special thing that you knew you were good at. Did that help your confidence? Yeah. I had been uh, actually acting out quite a bit before I started going on auditions and stuff. And once I did that, um, all of that sort of stopped. And what do you mean acting out? Well, I had been provoking a larger child into beating me up every day at school. (laughs) Okay. Any reason or? I don't remember. I have no... (laughs) 
I don't remember why I had that. And I don't think, I think at that age too, you don't like intellectualize those impulses. Yeah. But uh, yeah, that was what was going on. And it was um, understandably disturbing for my teacher. Right. Uh, and I remember that being like a thing. And then I, I very soon after that, I started, um, I started auditioning and stuff and I just sort of stopped doing stuff like that. Was there any casting or experience that dissuaded you from acting? Um, no, not really. I mean, I knew from early on, you know, there's so much rejection before you ever get your first part. So all of that was something I just took as part of the job. There were lots of aspects of it I didn't like. I hated fittings. I hated the makeup mm -hmm. and hair tests because all that was was people standing around talking about how they could make what was wrong with me better. But at the same time, that was just part of the job. So it never even occurred to me that I would be able to do the job without those things. And I loved the job so much that those were just like, I was like, oh, it's this day. Okay, well, we'll just have right. to get through, to, we have to get through this and everything will be fine. <laughs> right. I mean, you must have had the patience of a saint to be like a nine-year-old in mermaids just doing fittings and... You know, did you understand what was going on at the time? Yeah, I did. And I, I really felt that I was lucky to be there. And, you know, they cut all my hair off. And at that age, I was very <laughs> upset. And I cried and cried and cried. But I was just so excited. It's so happy. And like anything else in life, there are, there are drawbacks. You know, there's, there's the good and the bad. So. And is there a main takeaway or lesson you learned as a child actor that still impacts you today or one that you have brought with you or find particularly valuable? I think what's interesting is having been a child on movie sets or TV sets mm -hmm. and now being an adult on one. And I think that it's invaluable to have had both perspectives. As a kid, mm -hmm. very much would always just like listen and watch. No one was ever going to tell me anything directly. So if I wanted to know what was going on, I had to just be very still and quiet and listen. I wasn't in a position to ever set boundaries or say what I wanted. So I very much had to be someone who was very adaptable and accepting. And I found ways to make things that were difficult for me, things I could, I could do. So I do think that it really taught me to be incredibly adaptive and very tolerant which is good and bad. <laughs> right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I mean, you have to listen to the older people on set simultaneously. You have your own internal boundaries. Was boundary setting something that you got better at or kind of found your voice as you aged as an actor and came into your own? Yeah. I think once I got older, when I was younger, I mean, I had no uh, abilities, even things I was afraid to do, like physically, like stunts and stuff. I invented imaginary friends to be with me when I was doing those things because I was scared and I knew I couldn't say no. So now that I'm older, <laughs> I mean, I'm 42 now. So yeah, maybe in my 20s, I would have been for different reasons, like afraid to say I don't want to do that. I'm scared. But now I'm very much like, nope, looks unsafe. Not doing it. <laughs> right, right. Because really, in order to be an actor, I think you do have to understand that the project is bit bigger than any individual within it, you know? Right. As an actor, you have to learn to sacrifice self. As a professional, you have to learn to sacrifice self at times. But I do think that when you have a child, that's a little dangerous because they haven't developed self yet. Right. So the self they develop is one that is sacrificable. Right. Or not the most important position for long enough before you get to put it away, kind of. But now that I'm older, I kind of have 
understood that that is where a lot of myself was developed. And so in an old-fashioned way, I guess I could be seen as being too strong about my boundaries and limitations and what I will and will not do. But I'm very clear. And people will be like, no, it's safe. And I'm like, you know what? It just takes one time. Totally. It's always a first. And I'm not doing that. I'm not, <laughs> I'm not doing it. So, yeah. I heard you were rebellious as a teenager. And by the way, I was also hiding vodka bottles under my bed. (laughs) But your life um, was already so unconventional. And I mean, you have a strict shooting schedule. You have to follow what's way bigger than you, as you said. Mm -hmm. So you can't go out, get battered at the bar and just show up late, bleary eyed to set. So what does rebellion look like when you're a teenage star? Um, I don't know. I mean, I didn't say the things I was supposed to say when I was interviewed. I didn't dress the way I was supposed to dress. Um, what way were you supposed to dress? I was just, uh, I refused to conform for quite some time. And then I was just like, fine, I'll conform. I love your style. <laughs> I'm obsessed with your style. Well, at that time, I was pretty gross. <gasps> my style, I called my style garbage pail kid. And I intentionally <laughs> was disgusting. <laughs> I don't know. I was just rebellious. And I, I did, you know, obviously when I was working, I didn't like go out and stuff. But we there was a period of time where I was pretty wild. And was there any ramifications for that? Or was it just like... Not really. Not so much. It was fine. I mean, I'm sure I nearly gave my publicist at the time a million heart attacks because I was always in page six for <laughs> stuff I did when I was out. But you know, it happens. I was over it by the time I was like 22. The Bible of bad behavior. I would have done anything to be in page six when I was 16. I'll tell you that. <laughs> Can you give us a sense of what tabloid and paparazzi culture was like when you were coming of age in the in the 90s and aughts? Because I can imagine that that... Well, they would just be everywhere and they'd follow you home and there'd always be someone parked outside your house. You know, in the beginning, I remember trying to like lose people so they wouldn't find out where I lived. And then I realized that my address with really great directions to my house was on a maps to the stars. Oh my God. So I was like, why bother? I, so many people know. I was like, I should get some so that I can give better directions to my friends. <laughs> Cause it was like before Google maps and on phones and yeah. well, we had, you know, before smartphones on yeah. stuff. So I was like, I mean, honestly, we should just get some maps of the stars. Cause these are great directions. <laughs> so you kind of always felt very much exposed. And I always call it feeling like food because a couple of times, like people walked on my front lawn and walked up to me and I wouldn't really understand what's going on, but it would be someone like being like, I have a script I wrote. It was just very strange. And now looking back, now that it's not like that, looking back and remembering being like in my 20s and this going on, it is a little crazy. I created a mental game. Yeah, tell me. <laughs> to deal with it. Because people just always were like, recognize me and talking to me and there were photographers everywhere and you always had to be aware. I decided to pretend that my dad was like just this really well-respected doctor in town that everybody loved. And so everybody was saying hi to me or like talking to me or paying attention to me because they just really loved my dad. And I was like this oh, like favorite daughter because I think I needed to make myself feel safe, you know, right. that the attention was positive and like wholesome instead of feeling so predatory. And you'd really be able to convince yourself, and that would actually be a mechanism for you. I'd be able to feel it enough that I would feel protected and not frightened when I was out. 
You know what's unbelievable to me is that, A, that company still exists. I feel like whenever I go to L.A., it's like, do you want a star tour? Like, you'll, you know, this is Charlize Theron's house. I'm like, this is so invasive. I don't think we should be bringing people to strangers' homes. <laughs> no, it's insane. Did you ever have issues sleeping because of that when you were younger? I mean, I am so paranoid even now. I'm like, did anyone follow me home? Did I lock my yeah. door? Like, I can't even imagine. I am very safety conscious. I lock every door. Then I lock the door to my bedroom. When I lived alone, I used to bring all the dogs into my room, lock the door. I had the ADT pad, like, right here next to my bed. I hit that panic button, like, three times (laughs) the whole time I lived there. Like, I now travel with um, one of those travel locks for hotel rooms. Oh, my God, tell me. Because people can still get into your hotel room, even if the, like, thing is slid. So you can order on Amazon. It's like a travel lock, and it just attaches to, like, the inside the door jam and creates a wedge so that no matter what, you physically cannot open that door. And then you just take it off in the morning and take it with you. I feel like that's really good for anyone's mental peace, to be honest, especially if you're a woman. Yes, yes. Well, that's why all the, apparently um, flight attendants use them. When they travel. Really? Mm-hmm. Because there's a really high, because they travel so much, there's a high right. incident of that stuff happening to them. How do you know this? Is this because of Pan Am? No. Um, there was a news story a while ago about a young girl in Florida, um, somebody coming into her room and her being able to um, say that her dad was a cop and he was on his way back up to the room and the guy left. But Unreal. after reading about it, I just did a little research. <laughs> Did anything prompt the locks, the dogs, or was it just your own mental peace knowing that every single person like knew who you were? I think it was that, but I think I also just am a small woman in the world. And, yeah. You know, we get raped and kidnapped. And mm-hmm. so <clears throat> I've always kind of felt not so safe. There's so many things that as women we know not to do. Yeah. And uh, I follow all the safety rules. (laughs) Literally, Sam. So growing up in a fishbowl and getting this kind of attention, besides the safety precautions, did it manifest in any other way, like anxiety or? God, I have a lot of anxiety, but I don't know if, I'm sure, I'm sure the fame contributed to it, I guess. Um, But I was also already really anxious it's weird, though, because I think when things are so extreme, sometimes you're forced to just overcome them and just say, like, I'm just going to live my life. So I think most people who know me are always like, you know, like, I don't live my life in a way where I acknowledge being famous or well-known because I don't like how that hinders my ability to take part. So I guess what I ultimately learned from all of it was that it really doesn't matter. You know, like, who Mm -hmm. cares if there's a picture of you in a horrendous, like, you know, I've driven my son to school in my ugly jammies before and had to get out and pump emergency gas. And that was the one time in months there was a paparazzi there. And you know what? It's embarrassing. But it doesn't matter. Ultimately, who cares? Totally. People are going to say things or write things. And I just really learned to let go and to focus on what's like right in front of me because that's my life experience really is what's actually happening in front of me and is tangible and real. So I guess maybe I wouldn't have come to that conclusion had it not been extreme. Interesting. I mean, listen, that applies not even to actors. That's to everyone. That's a very Buddhist and mindful approach. Especially now, I think that they're really like – 
I feel it so much. Like people ask me like, oh, how does it feel that Yellow Jackets is so successful? And I'm like, but how would I feel that? Like that's not, mm. I don't feel, like a, a bell doesn't go off every time somebody watches the show. You know what I mean? Like I don't, yeah. how do I measure that? I'm just at home. I'm not hearing from everybody. Like, do you know, it's such an totally. intangible thing instead of dealing with something like right in front of you that you can feel. Um, right. And I feel like now with social media and all that stuff, it's confusing because you do feel like if maybe if you grew up with nothing but it, you might it might feel just as real as everything else. Mm-hmm. And I can't get there because I think I'm too old. But I would think that that would be disturbing if this thing that's kind of not real feels super tangible. No, I actually think that's a really good point because I feel like when the podcast reached a certain amount of listeners, this is like a number I didn't even think we'd get so soon. And when we did, I was like, oh my God, but you were right. Like no bell went off. I was like, all right, nope, life is just going on. It was just like a virtual number. It had zero effect on anything. And yeah. I was like, all right, I guess I'll just keep doing my thing now. Like, <laughs> I know, <laughs> you know what I mean? it's so weird. Things could be so anticlimactic. Cause you're totally. like, it's going to feel so different. And it yeah. doesn't. No. <laughs> yeah. You know, yeah. it's good. It's bolstering. You're like, okay, great. I can, I'll keep going. But it's not like the real tangible things that happen in front of you that you yeah. feel. You mentioned anxiety earlier and that you had it for a while, even before all of the tabloids and paparazzi and surveillance. When did you first feel anxiety, if you can remember? Oh, when I was very young. I had a very difficult household and uh, a lot of chaos. And um, so there was a lot of anxiety very early on. And did that manifest in any way in particular? I mean, mine manifested with um, with OCD. I ended up developing like debilitating OCD as kind oh, of wow. a way to cope, like a coping mechanism. Mm-hmm. And that obviously just ended up, you know, destroying my life and landing me in therapy. But, you know... <laughs> Onward and upward. Yeah. Did it come in any way in particular or? Well, I don't know. I mean, it was probably why I was getting an older kid to beat me up. Um, All that anxiety. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Might have contributed. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then, I don't know. I mean, I had like sort of some OCD tendencies, but not really. I think I've just always just like felt it and been really edgy and, uh, you know, all the thought patterns that go with people with anxiety and spiraling and... um, Social anxiety, you know, obsessively thinking about everything you said or did for days, that kind of thing. It's so interesting because I've watched so many interviews of you, especially in preparation for this episode, and you come off so cool and collected. It's weird. People always say that to me. They're like, you're so calm. You have such a chill vibe. And I'm like, that's because inside I am dying. (laughs) I always used to joke that I'm full of spiders. Uh And like the anxiety is like, oh, God, the spiders are getting crazy in there, guys. (laughs) Which sounds really nuts, actually, when I say it. But I think it's my way of like blaming someone else for how insane I feel inside. But yeah, outwardly, I, I always seem very, very calm. But at the same time, like my teeth will crack and fall out. I'm so anxious. I feel you. I also clench my jaw mm-hmm. to the point where I've like built unbelievable muscle to the point where like. My, yeah, my I mis- didn't get any muscle. All I got was I have like half tooth, half teeth, half tooths, half no teeth. No way. All the way down like cracks and where they fall out. And that's like usually when I know like, oh God, something's got to, I got to change something because right. another to- a tooth just fell out. <laughs> right. Not the whole tooth. It's that I crack the tooth because yeah. a tooth falling out makes me sound like a crackhead, and I'm not. <laughs> no. I'm not. 
<laughs> well, a lot of things. <laughs> Wait, so what will you do to change that? Like, what would a change be that you would make after a tooth crack? Well, I just mean, you know, like, whatever's going on in your life is so extreme that you have to change right. whatever's the source of the anxiety. I started doing psychedelic therapy. That has helped leaps and bounds. With Is that the microdosing mushrooms and stuff? I did MDMA therapy. Oh. I'd have these these like physical manifestations of anxiety. And when they'd come on, I was like, okay, this is clearly bigger than me. I'm doing this like in my sleep. But I was like, okay, I think I have to do something bigger and like kind of more subconscious. And that's why I ended up turning to psychedelic therapy. It was in- absolutely incredible. What's the process? You take a hero dose of MDMA um, or psilocybin. I just did MDMA therapy so far, but you basically have all of these absolutely life-changing visions And the whole point is to take these visions and then connect them and integrate them into your life through a different therapy called integration therapy. So you essentially become your spiritual self. And I only mention this because all of the physical manifestations or many of them for at least two months all went away. I stopped grinding my teeth. Like all the things I do with anxiety, like sometimes I'll, my posture will get really bad and I'll, I have really bad scoliosis and like my body like contorts according to my anxiety. So this has been the only thing that's actually helped me. So, um, but that sounds really amazing. Yeah, it was amazing. It does make sense too, because so, when so many things you're dealing with them not consciously, it does make sense to address your subconscious. Which brings me to with uh, all the anxiety talk. <laughs> How easy is it to get in and out of the headspaces of your characters? Because I found it interesting that after Prozac Nation, you said you had a hard time mentally leaving that role. And I'm curious why that was. I didn't have a lot of, like I haven't had a lot of training as an actor and I had never played a part like that where I would just be um, so upset for so long. And um, I had worked with a lot of male actors that sort of were just like, you just throw yourself in it and, mm-hmm. you know, that kind of methody, like, duty kind of thing. And I was like, great, that's what I'm going to do. It's just like, all that matters is the performance. And so I stayed in a really upset place for months. And uh-huh. I didn't do any of the things that you're supposed to do to sort of, like, uh, detach from it or protect yourself or be able to clearly say to your brain all the time, these are not my problems. Like, I don't actually feel this way. Right. Um, And then, so after you sit in that for months, well, what happened, my brain started to really feel the same way as the character, Um, even in my personal life, when I didn't necessarily, those were not my problems. So that's kind of what happened to me then. But I don't really do that anymore. It was one of those things that, like, I did because I was young, and I was like, oh, this is how you play parts like this. But now that I'm older, I realize you don't really need to do all of that. <laughs> and how did that impact you after? Well, I had just had a really hard time afterwards. Um, I was still felt the same way as the character for a long time oh afterwards. My God. It just took a long time for it to go away. And it was confusing because I knew, you know, in some way you know that those aren't your problems. So you're feeling something you know you're not supposed to feel, and that just makes it harder to, like, get through it, I guess. Right. But I don't remember what I did. I just think it it just went away after a while. I haven't done that since. And I also now understand why people, like I have a healthy hesitation towards doing those kinds of scenes and roles, which I think is good because that means that I actually learned something and I'm trying to protect myself. And how did you ultimately get out of that space? 
I wish sometimes I was the kind of person that when I'm going through something, I just like took to my bed, but I'm not. <laughs> I'm the kind of person that's like, oh God, this feels really bad like right now. Let's completely dive into something else. And so I will fully engage in life. And while I'm engaging in life, I sort of process and get past the thing. Because I don't think I'm somebody who can fully focus on what I'm going through without falling apart, I think. I always have to have like another task. I mean, that's actually what you're supposed to do. It's like called opposite action. Like if you feel like staying in bed and just being a depressive mess all day, you're actually supposed to like, you know, scrape yourself all out of the sheets and, you know, go get ice cream or take a walk or anything you can do. So you're without knowing it. Without knowing it, I'm healthy. <laughs> I think I will get so afraid of being depressed or not being able to function. The joke is like people will joke, I'll be late for stuff. And people yeah. will be like, but didn't you set your schedule today? And I'm like, I know, but I was supposed to be at the store by 1.30. Yeah. <laughs> so I tend to deal with things like in that way. When I was 24 and working at Vogue, despite it being one of the most incredible experiences of my life, it was also when I started binge eating. And yeah. I think it came on as a result of just kind of the pressure cooker that was, you know, working in that office coupled with some, you know, relationship BS. But I think I turned to it for kind of like emotional regulation, even though it ended up doing the complete opposite as most eating disorders do. But I mean, I would literally be at a point where I'd like binge eat like 2000 calories in 20 minutes and then like not eat for two days. It was like a real big mess. And um, you've also been open about having an eating disorder. And if you're open to talking about it, I'm curious what that looked like for you. I just, I'm one of those people that I guess with my opposite action sort of impulses, I'm also, I also like to um, problem solve ahead of time and manage, <laughs> manage how bad the future is going to be for me. Um, uh -huh. And so when I was a child, <laughs> I mentioned how much I hated fittings and the fittings have always revolved around my body. Mm -hmm. And it seemed to me when I was younger that the only bad thing anyone had to say about me was that I was too healthy looking, which meant chubby. Uh, it's such bullshit. And because it seemed to be the only thing that anyone be able, was able to torture me with, I was like, well, then I'm going to take care of that because I just don't ever want to hear that again. And mm -hmm. it, I felt very much like if I didn't want to be bothered by something, I should just fix it. And I wasn't really taking care of myself before this. So I did start like dieting and exercising and then I saw a Lifetime movie about anorexia, and I was like, I can do that. Are you serious? I was like, is that how I do this? Because I can totally do yeah. this. And I did it. Yeah. And I remember at first being very much in control of it. And then I remember the moment that my brain started to get out, get away from me. And I mm. realized that my brain was actually telling me things that were horrible for me and that I had lost control. I had lost mm. control of my impulses. I had lost control of my free will. I was a complete slave to what felt very much like an enemy in my brain. And that, to me, was the thing that was terrifying. The actual, like, starving and the control and all that stuff didn't scare me because I felt like I could stop it at any time. It was a choice. But once mm -hmm. I felt my brain flip and I no longer was in control of myself, that's when I was really scared. And I'll never forget that experience. And it, took, it was really hard to get over. Uh, but when I realized that I was not in control anymore... 
and it was a false sense of control in my life, I started to try to recover from it. And ultimately I was able to, but yeah, I'll never forget that, that you, that you can actually lose control of your own mind. And what was so scary to you about that? Like, what was your mind telling you that made you feel like it had control over you? Well, I knew that it was completely irrational to be terrified, terrified of food. Mm. Like when it got to that point, I was like, well, that's not rational. Mm -hmm. This is a crazy outsized reaction to something that other people do every day. Right. Once I realized that I was having really abnormal feelings about normal, about normal everyday stuff that would keep me alive, I was like, oh, wow, my brain has turned on me and is no longer acting in my best interest. And so that's when I was like, oh, I gotta, I really need to fix this. First of all, thank you so much for sharing that. I so hear you, by the way, of being scared of food. I also used to like dread meals because I wouldn't trust myself to eat an amount that felt filling. Like I didn't know how to eat. I either would eat like, you know, like the smallest bites of nothing, or I'd like gorge myself. And I lost total perspective over my own feelings of being satisfied, like satiation and fullness, you know? So I totally get the being scared of food. How did you find it in yourself to get help? And like, what did the therapy look like? Well, I've always been a person that, um, I guess it goes with the whole opposite action stuff. I don't like feeling bad. Yeah. I do not like feeling bad. I will always grab the balloon. I will take every opportunity to feel happy and better. Mm -hmm. And so at that age and... How old were you at the time? I was 14. Okay. So super young. I just felt so like everything was so wrong all the time. And I knew that everything was not that wrong. I knew that Mm. I didn't really have... That I mean, yes, there had been a lot in my childhood. And looking back now, I probably was dealing with a lot of trauma at the time. Mm-hmm. And But I, in that place, was not able to see that. I was more able to say, like, you're fine. You're not mm-hmm. in danger. You there's, there's good things happening. Like, there's no reason for you to be completely, like, killing yourself. Mm-hmm. And I just really didn't want to fail. I've always been a person who, like... I don't want other people to win. So if it was about the shit that had been done to me as, as when mm. I was a child, I very much viewed it as if I destroy myself, that person's winning. Why totally. would I allow that person from my past to win yeah. 10 years later? So I've always had that kind of thing too. Where I, I yeah. would get better to spite other people. And I think all of that contributed to me really. And I found an amazing therapist in New York, um, Dr. Catherine Fideli, and her specialty at the time was eating disorders, and uh, she just really helped me. And I had, like, a really crazy dream one night, and it was so upsetting to me and so visceral that when I woke up in the morning, I was like, I, I committed to changing. And then that's awful, too, because recovering from anorexia is the cruelest joke that anyone has ever played on, <laughs> on teenage girls. Because you know what happens. You've slowed down your metabolism so much that the second you do start eating again, your worst fear is realized you put on massive amounts of weight. So I started eating again and had to deal with putting on, I think I put on 25 to 30 pounds in a month. And then, and then it just kept going. It took a really long time for my metabolism to even out. So like 
when I was 17 or 18 and I was really famous, uh, one of the things that people that I was famous for was being chubby. Well, I wasn't chubby because I was naturally chubby. I was chubby because I was had been recovering from anorexia for two years. <laughs> Unbelievable. So it was sort of like one of those things that people were like, you're so brave to have this body. And I was like, you don't know the half of it. <laughs> right. You don't know how much I actually hate myself right now. And yet still, I will be on this magazine cover. <laughs> yes. So it was funny. Like that whole period of time, that is, it is like, it was a, yeah, this is just another thing. <laughs> Listen, I think it's remarkable that you, I mean, I hate the phrase beat it, but that you beat it or do well, you- I was young enough and it didn't go on for that long. It was like a year and a half. And I, they do say that the longer you suffer with it, the harder it is. And I could tell, I can tell that just from how my brain was. Not to equate them and don't take this the wrong way, but do you think it was also kind of a testament to your work ethic that you were able to be like, okay, you're just going to laser vision on something that you want to solve and you're going to do it the same way that you would like laser vision on a film and just be in that character and get the job done. Do you think that had anything to do with your ability to weather this remarkable period? I don't know exactly what. I I just know that it felt very urgent to me at the Mm, time to fix it. I think I really got to a place I was lucky to get to because I think I was already a very self-aware child mm-hmm. that I was able to get to a place where I understood how terrible this this disease was and mm-hmm. what it was going to do to me ultimately long term. That understanding filled me with such urgency and fear that I, I just knew that I had absolutely no other choice. On a more positive note, last year you got married and had yep. Cleopatra. Congratulations. Thank you. Thanks. <laughs> and you've mentioned that this is the first healthy relationship you've been in, and a lifetime of romantic struggle is something I can definitely relate to. Um, what is different about this relationship that wasn't there before? Well, I don't know. I just, I really am a huge believer that. You can make yourself miserable on your own. You don't need another person to help in that. So if there's going to be another person in your life, they should probably make you happy. And that should be the focus. And the focus of the two people should be making each other really happy. And, you know, I would say my husband and I are really, really kind to each other. And people Mm. always are like, you guys are so polite to each other. We still say please and thank you and excuse me and sorry and because I, I really have always felt like sometimes people think being comfortable means being your worst version. Like you get to just be mm-hmm. the worst possible version of yourself. And I I don't think that's true. I think you could still yeah. treat another person as as well as you would treat a stranger and still be comfortable with them. Yeah. I would say that's the thing. Like we're both really focused on being kind. And Mark is just, Mark is my husband and he's very kind. And we both are the kinds of people that like, I don't want the people around me to be unhappy. You know, I don't get to be happy if the people around me are miserable. So we're very focused on the whole group being happy sort of vibe. I love that answer. And I feel like kindness is so taken for granted in relationships. I saw this meme the other day where it was you texting your best friend versus you texting your boyfriend. And it was like, oh my God, babe, miss you. And then the answer to the boyfriend was like, K. 
you know? Yeah. And I'm like, what is that? Like, you know, if you're in a relationship, it's the most sacred space ever. The idea that kindness is the first thing to go blows my mind. Yeah, and basic considerations, you know, for other people. Just, yeah, it is strange that, like, comfort usually means completely, like, losing all the nice things you used to do for the other person. I don't know. It's just, it's so nice to be with somebody who's just, like, consistently always going to try to keep things pleasant and kind and happy. And, you know, you can trust, I I can trust him, you know, I can trust that there's not going to be some insane kind of like emotional craziness, you know, we get to be, it all gets to be consistent and fabulous. So it's really, I feel very lucky, but I am 42. So it does take a long time. You are 42, but you've also been present in the pop culture sphere for over 30 years. How have your priorities changed both inside and outside of acting? You know, at the beginning, I was just doing it because it was fun and it was a relief and it was an escape and um, a refuge for me when I was younger. And I think that as I got older, I very much still view it that way uh, because to me, it is a place where... I just get to focus on work and do this thing that I'm really, and it's a place that I'm more comfortable than anywhere else in the world. And so I think my focus now is very much just being able to keep doing really interesting work, um, the kind of work I like to do, um, and just getting to work and make things. Um, uh, Yeah, so that's my main focus, I guess, now. How have your expectations of yourself changed since you were in your 20s? I don't think I used to expect very much of myself, to tell you the truth. Mm-hmm. And I think mm-hmm. now that I'm older and I've been through some shit and I've seen, seen what I'm capable of, I have much higher expectations. You know, I expect myself now to stand up for myself. I expect mm. myself to be able to make change, um, to not be afraid of of things that seem like overwhelming or too much responsibility. You know, I guess I just, um, I used to feel that I incapable, but from more of a sort of fearful, uninformed place. And now I feel like, no, you're capable, find out the information and then you can do this. Um, but when I was younger, I, I didn't feel capable at all. Like I thought I couldn't even go to the DMV. I was so afraid. But it's interesting because the fear was just like a crippling anxiety and the unknown, you know? Totally. But now I feel like I can totally um, navigate that by, you know, just informing myself. And also, I guess, realizing what you need as you get older to help yourself facilitate things. Like for me, I need information. (laughs) I need to be, I need to like, maybe I will look at a map of the place I'm going ahead of time. Or, like, read other people's experiences or um, mentally go through my day so I can manage my expectations or say, like, oh, well, if that happens, what will I do? Like, I'm one of those people. I need information and, like, plan A and B. (laughs) I still have crippling anxiety going to the DMV. I can't believe you said that because I have not renewed my license in four years because... Jury duty (laughs) makes me feel really stressed. Same. Yeah, anything has to do with Especially in New York. I think. Same. I have never gone to New York, but I've had to go a few times in LA and I've found it like 
cripplingly. I so get Crippling that. anxiety. I did not. I felt like I just couldn't survive. <laughs> so weird. But then it was fine. I think bureaucracy freaks me out, but also just the, right, like beyond. And also like. Yeah, because you can actually make mistakes that have dire consequences in that sort of. Yeah, completely. That's also why taxes freak me out. I mean, I know taxes freak a lot of people out, but there is something. It's the same through line. Like yeah. any, yeah, totally. Like any sort of like passport renewal, I like get paralyzed and like, it's okay. I don't have to go. I don't have to travel. I'm like, oh no, wait, I literally do. I but- get freaked <laughs> out like going through customs and like filling out the forms. I'm just like, I know I'm going to fill this out wrong and I'm going to end up in Canadian prison. <laughs> I'm always like, I'm so sorry, sir. Did I hit the wrong, did I click the wrong box? Did I say the wrong thing? I'm so sorry, sir. I might've done the wrong thing. Yeah. No, I'm the exact same. And also there was one time, because I live in Berlin and I was traveling back to New York for Christmas and I had two lemons in my bag because I wasn't going to throw lemons out. I didn't want them to spoil. So I put them in my purse and I brought them on the plane and I got randomly stopped at customs and they went through my bag and they were like, excuse me, miss, what do you think you're doing with this exotic fruit? And I'm like, it is literally a lemon. But... (laughs) It was scarring for me. And now every time I go through customs, I'm like, do I have, like, as if I'm, like, smuggling something. I, like, you know. I know. I get so nervous, too. And I'm like, I'm like, they're going to think you're doing something wrong just because of the fact that you're, like, sweating and shaking. Your hands are shaking. Same. I know. I, I can't get over it, though. It's hard. What drives you? I am driven by a real desire to be happy and to get to a place in my life where I feel calm and happy and accomplished and I don't have a ton of worries you know I mean I'm not even high I just want to feel calm and happy (laughs) and like have enough money to like be comfortable and my kids are comfortable and that's it really that's what drives me is like getting to really enjoy every minute of the rest of my life That, my friends, was Christina Ricci. You can follow her on Instagram at RicciGrams. That's R-I-C-C-I, obviously, I guess, because it is literally the name of our episode. And you can follow me at Gillian Sagansky. Also, please don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss out on the treats we have in store. Until next time. 